Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. We have some on this back table here. One of the best things that we could do for you is give you a Bible. Um, it's better than the donuts. It's better than the coffee. Uh, it's better than the handshake that you hopefully got when we went around greeting people. So no shame. Go pick one up. And if you have one, turn to Luke chapter 23. Uh, I'd like to pray for us before we get cracking in this. So let me do that. God, you are so good, and we thank you for this particular passage of Scripture that echoes those psalms that we just read, where we learn that because uh, evil people rose up against Jesus and he suffered at their hands, we through that have the forgiveness of sins and the newness of life, and we have your grace and your mercy. And we thank you that you came to his aid by raising him from the dead, and you come to our aid by raising us from the dead. And I pray that you would bless your word this morning as we look at it. Um, I pray for those in the room who have already put their faith in you, Lord, that you would encourage and sustain them. And for those in this room who don't yet know you as God, as Savior, as Lord, that you would open their eyes and, and help them to see just how good you are. Lord, would they taste and see that you are good. Bless our time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been making our way through Luke. That's no surprise if you've been around at all. And we are now approaching the climax of Luke's gospel, the crucifixion and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to just jump right into this text as we see Jesus now brought before and put on trial in front of Pontius Pilate and then uh, Herod Agrippa, or I'm sorry, Herod Antipas. Uh, so if you're in Luke 23, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. Why don't you read along with me or listen? It says, Then the whole company of them, that's the religious leaders of the Jews, arose and brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Uh, I don't know about you, but one of the things that really boils my blood is injustice. Injustice in the world. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, probably uh, first grade, I think this is probably the first memory that I have of experiencing the injustice that pervades our world. I had waited in line uh, during one recess to get one of the playground balls at elementary school. You know, the rubber ones that you play 
Foursquare with. And I'd waited patiently in line. I, I got one of the balls. There were only so many, and I'd gone off to play uh, during lunchtime recess when this fifth grader came over and took the ball from me. And I asked him to give it back. I thought that that would be effective, and it wasn't. And uh, he took off with the ball, and I promptly burst into tears. And I went to the adult playground monitor, and I, I it, through my tears, explained to her that I had waited for the ball, and someone took it from me, and, and would she help me? And instead, she uh, told me to stop crying and called me a baby, and that was that. And I remember just feeling so angry at how cruel and unjust the world could be, right? And that was just a stupid ball. You've probably experienced things on a much grander scale than that, right? And I know we live in a world that's saturated with relativity, as if right and wrong could be defined by each individual person without having consequences for other people around us. But there is, without a doubt, an objective way that the world is supposed to be. And deep down somewhere in our gut, we know it. There are clear lines between right and wrong, and at some point, everybody knows that. For example, you don't hurt other people. There's a reason why we're all agreed on laws that protect children. You don't steal from other people, right? You don't execute innocent people for no reason. But here's a scene in Luke where right and wrong ultimately get mixed up in a pretty awful way, and just about everybody present in this text ends up guilty of condemning an innocent man. Jesus is about to die, and I want you to see that his death is unjust. Pilate, the Roman governor with the power to condemn or release him, look at verse 4. What does he say? He says, this man is without guilt. And yet, you know the story. Pilate is ultimately going to hand him over to his soldiers to be executed. He's going to eventually order Jesus to be crucified, executed in a most vile and ultimately humiliating way. Now, I'm sure some of you are probably pretty aware of Pilate's background. Like, how, how, does, a, how does a government official uh, rule with such injustice? How does that happen? Some of you are probably aware, but let me cover some of it briefly for you, okay? Before this moment, which is a pretty tense political moment between Pilate the governor and the Jews who he is uh, authorized to oversee, Pilate got himself in some trouble previously, okay? He wanted to build an aqueduct in Jerusalem, and so in order to fund the project, he took money out of the temple coffers, the Jewish temple. And the Jews were so outraged by his seizure of money from the temple that they rose up and filled the streets, and they protested against this seizure of their funds that they considered sacred and holy because they came from the temple coffers. And when uh, the Jews wouldn't disband at Pilate's command, what he did is he sent his troops in among the people in disguise and then ordered his men on his command to beat the Jews until they went home and stopped protesting. Josephus, who is an early uh, historian, records these events. And uh, Pilate's men used more force, I guess, than he intended. And as a result of this command... Uh, a number of the thousands of Jews who had risen up to protest were killed in the streets. Many of them weren't even among the protesters. 
And when word of these events got back to Caesar, whose goal was to keep peace around the world, he was angry at Pontius Pilate for the unnecessary violence that he had committed against the Jewish people. This increased the political instability in Palestine, which was an area that had actually, much like today, it's a very volatile place, even in the time of Jesus. The stubborn nature of the Jews meant that there was almost always some kind of political uprising in Jerusalem or the surrounding area. And as far as Rome and the emperor were concerned, Pilate was on thin ice regarding his position as governor of Judea. And so now we see Pilate doing the thing that politicians often seem to be so good at, right? Making an unjust decision for somebody else because it's politically expedient for himself, beneficial for his own skin in the game, right? In other words, to avoid more trouble in the streets, more riots by this crowd that's getting rather rowdy, in order to avoid the disapproval of Rome by having to put down another rebellion, Pilate executes one man, Jesus, to appease the religious leaders who are demanding for his crucifixion. And Pilate is looking out for Pilate, which means that injustice becomes irrelevant in his eyes because his own position is on the line. He doesn't care if Jesus, who's an innocent man, that, that, those words come out of his own lips. He does not care if Jesus, an innocent man, is murdered without cause so long as it keeps the people quiet and the emperor happy. And Pilate, like so many people, only cares about justice when justice has some benefit for him. But when it doesn't benefit him, although he adamantly proclaims the innocence of Jesus, Pilate actually ends up giving the order for Jesus to be crucified. Now, it's interesting, as if that's not bad enough, but look, Pilate also tries one other kind of oily way out of this situation. Uh, another way to sort of abdicate his responsibility as governor. If you look at verse 6, Pilate finds out Jesus is from Galilee. That's not my jurisdiction. And Herod's in town. So I'll send Jesus to the king of the Jewish people, Herod. Herod was from northern Israel, and he's in Jerusalem because Jews from all over the world would gather in Jerusalem during the Passover, which is the time of year that it is, for this grand feast. And so they've all come to celebrate, which makes the powder keg even more full, right? There's people all over the streets. But Herod is essentially a puppet king. Uh, Pontius Pilate knows that he doesn't have much power. He's sort of put there as kind of a, a figurehead for the Jewish people. I would go even further and say that Herod himself needed political stability to protect his own interests in the region. He needed the Jewish leaders, religious leaders, to be appeased in order that his kingdom might continue forward without interruption. His power as king over the region was dependent upon political stability, just like Pilate. And if the religious leaders wanted Jesus dead, Herod wasn't going to risk his own neck in defense of this man, this country peasant. He wasn't going to stick his neck out there. He doesn't care about right or wrong either, justice or injustice. He just cares to make sure that his own position is secure. 
But we find that Herod does indeed feel a curiosity about Jesus, right? We can see that in verse 8. He has this desire to be entertained, to be delighted by this man that he's heard, walks around the countryside causing miracles to be performed. Sort of like a person from generations past. I know this probably isn't politically correct anymore, but they, they might have had a strange curiosity to go see the circus sideshow, right? The freak show. Herod has no interest in Jesus for Jesus' sake. Herod just wants to see a little magic, to have a little fun, to be entertained, and then get back to living his luxurious life. And I fa- in fact, I would say I think the only other reason that Herod might have wanted to see Jesus was to find out if this man around whom so much controversy had been swirling was not, in fact, powerful enough to overthrow the kingdom of Herod or Rome. And once Jesus disappoints him with no magic, a boring silence, some cruel teasing, then Herod is done playing with him, sends him back to Pilate. He also abdicates responsibility. And what's very clear from this text, I think, is that Jesus, as he stands before both Pontius Pilate and Herod, we find that neither Pilate nor Herod saw in Jesus any personal threat to their kingdom or their power. They see an insignificant peasant, a friendless, homeless man who's been abandoned by everyone, falsely accused of stirring up an invisible mob towards revolution. And the accusations leveled against Jesus are utterly untenable. That's what Pilate concludes. And yet, in spite of his clear innocence, both Pilate and Herod participate in the unjust execution of Jesus, refusing to take any stand as his advocate. Isn't that incredible? In other words, both Herod and Pilate knew that Jesus was harmless, but they contributed to his demise anyway. And I want you to see that at this point, Jesus is utterly alone. He's totally alone. Nobody will come to his aid. Nobody will defend his innocence. Nobody will attempt a rescue. Nobody will respond to the fact that he's being tried unjustly. Jesus, who is the righteous one, will face the injustice of human sin alone because nobody is willing to step up and help an innocent man. And I would say the crowds, too, are guilty of injustice here. Stirred up by hatred, the religious leaders are threatening Pilate. He knows the power they have to stir the people up in the streets. And so they threaten Pilate, and as a result, they bring about the execution of an innocent man. They scream with such vehemence that nobody can even really get to the bottom of what, is being, what Jesus is being accused of. In fact, they fight so hard, it almost makes it obvious they are guilty, as if they have something to hide. You ever been in an argument with somebody who's losing and they just watched as they get louder and louder and more aggressive to assert their point? I mean, the cries of this crowd have to grow louder in assertiveness in proportion to the injustice of their demands. Do you see? Jesus is innocent. Yell louder. The louder you scream for a good man to be killed, the greater the pressure is to concede. And what is Jesus accused of again? Do you see it here? 
misleading our nation, stirring up the crowds, right? Causing insurrection, starting a revolution, stirring up the people, undermining Rome, advocating a new kingdom. And I do want you to see, no real evidence was ever brought against Jesus for those claims. And yet the fact remains, Jesus did start a revolution. Do you know that? Do you understand that? Jesus did advocate for a new kingdom. Ultimately, Jesus did bring about an insurrection through his resurrection from the dead. And don't you see, Jesus, he wasn't working to overthrow the government and set up a new government that would oppose Pontius Pilate or Caesar or Herod. He had come instead to create a new humanity out of the ashes and death of sinful mankind. And although there was no proof given at his trial that Jesus was a revolutionary, his was truly a revolution, just a revolution of love, not a revolution of weapons. Where mankind before had cheered injustice, even demanded injustice, loved sin and hidden in darkness, repaid evil for evil, Jesus instead came and talked about the kingdom of God, a place where the hearts of men and women are under the authority of God. A kingdom where evil is repaid with love instead. A kingdom with light and peace and joy. A kingdom where the evil of sin was fully and finally vanquished and man was set free from slavery to death. The kingdom of God where justice and mercy live together in perfection. A kingdom where given the choice between good and evil, men and women with transformed hearts could actually choose good for the glory of God. See, Jesus was, in fact, the leader of a revolution, but it was a revolution of love that took root in the hearts of people, and it ushered them into a radically different kingdom, a place where the politically powerful and the impoverished together could live in equality under the gracious love of God. You need to understand, this is a kingdom that transcended Israel. It transcended Pontius Pilate, Judea, Rome. It transcends America, Russia, China, or any other nation or worldview or, or race or gender. And so you see, although Jesus was innocent of the charges that were brought against him, he did, in fact, start a revolution. And this is what I want to ask you. Are you part of that revolution? Is that how you see your Christian faith? It's not a revolution, thank God, that requires you to spill your blood or a revolution that causes you to take up arms and spill the blood of another, your enemy. This revolution has already come about because Jesus, the Son of God, spilled his blood to start this revolution. And I do need to ask you, does the Christian life that you live, does it actually look like a revolution? Or is it just pretty much the same life as everybody else around you, maybe with like one of those fish stickers on the back of your car and the occasional Sunday attendance? Jesus died, and he died unjustly for this revolution, for you to belong to this revolution. And I would ask you not to allow his death to be in vain, as if it doesn't matter. Now, I want you to notice, too, how nobody in our story wants to take responsibility for encountering Jesus. 
Nobody wants to acknowledge the consequences of their actions. Nobody is honest about what is really going on here. Pilate tries to pass Jesus off to Herod so he doesn't have to be responsible for executing this man. Herod, who's the king of Jesus, the king of the Jews in reality, should have stood up for his subject who was unjustly accused, and instead he mocks him. He gives him over to Pilate and essentially says, do whatever you want with this guy. The crowds who had heard the teachings of Jesus, seen his miracles, watched him feed people, heal those who were sick, do good and teach about righteousness. They all, instead of love him, cry out for his death when they should have known that here was a good man, a man who did nothing but teach the wisdom of God, proclaim the forgiveness of sins through repentance and instruct that humans love God and love other people. He is receiving hatred from those whom he cared for. And nobody wants to take responsibility for their part in the situation. And I think there's an application for us here as well. I want to admonish us not to make this same mistake. And what I mean by that is that we too have a responsibility If you are a Christian, if you claim that Jesus is your friend, your Lord, your God, your Savior, then take responsibility for that profession of faith. That is a reality-altering truth. And you can't say that you love Him and then live a life that seems to deny Him. You can't call Him your Lord and then choose not to obey Him. You can't say that he's your friend, but then when the temptation of sin and darkness approaches, you go sneaking off with it instead of standing by his side. If you profess to have faith in Jesus, then you have to take responsibility for that claim, which means that you follow him, you look like him, you love him, you seek him. And for those of you who are are not Christians, I suspect there are maybe some of you in the room here this morning, I want you to understand you too have a responsibility. You don't claim that Jesus is your Lord, and I appreciate your honesty in that, but you need to understand that now that you've heard this message about the execution of an innocent man put to death on your behalf, unjustly condemned and murdered for your sins, you too now have a responsibility. You are actually without excuse. And therefore, I plead with you to take responsibility for the good news. God loves you. He sent his son to die for you that you might be saved. And on the day that you perish from this life and your body goes into the ground and your soul goes to stand before God in judgment, you will not be able to say to God, I didn't know. Nobody ever told me. It wasn't my responsibility to respond. I I have a good excuse. God will ask of you why you heard this good news of salvation and rejected it. Why you saw the life of Christ given for you and didn't take responsibility for your life, for your soul to join this revolution of love that he began. And so don't let this moment pass with you fading into the crowds of those shouting condemnation over Jesus, denying justice, 
mocking the king who came to offer you grace. I would plead with you that you would repent, that you would believe and let God raise you up. Let me offer one more small point of application for us as a church, and then I'm going to close with with kind of a two-piece final point. Sounds more complicated than it is. Hang with me. Do you see the amazing unity of the people in this passage? It's really incredible, actually. Pilate shows contempt for Jesus and ultimately sends him to his death. Herod mocks him. The crowds revile him. The soldiers tease him. I mean, verse 12 actually tells us that after this event, two men who were previously enemies became friends became united in their hatred of Jesus. When in history has mankind ever been so united together in a cause? Wow. Humans are far too often divided in competition with one another, schismatic and separated. But in this scene, people are amazingly united in hatred for Jesus. And I want to just say, in contrast, our church must be amazingly united in love for Jesus. We must become friends because of our shared love for the Lord. And I realize there are many things for us to disagree about. There are many things for us to have different opinions about. Some things in the Bible, I think that there are, you know, some room for disagreements, some different fine points of theology might be differently understood, but let us never forget the fact that with our brothers and sisters in the faith, we must have an amazing, astounding unity in our love for Jesus. And I say that it needs to be stunning because I think it's tragic when the church looks more like these crowds, doesn't it? Hurling insults and contempt at one another rather than letting, as the Bible says, every word be profitable for building one another up in love for Jesus. I mean, it is stunning the way that these people are united in hatred for Jesus. And I can only hope that the world would look at the church, our church in particular, Maricopa Springs, and be utterly shocked at the way that we get along with one another while the rest of the world remains in enmity with each other. And we get along for one purpose, the purpose of magnifying the glory and the name of the Lord Jesus, who is King. And so let our love for one another be a testimony of our love for the Lord. Now finally, I just want to point out where we see the gospel shine forth in this moment of Luke, okay? If you're not a church person, the gospel is just a fancy word that means good news. As Christians, we believe in a message of good news, And the good news that we believe is that there is forgiveness of sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's good news. The good news that we preach and proclaim is that although we deserve judgment because of sin, God through Christ instead has given us grace and mercy. The good news is that sin which leads to death has been triumphed by Jesus who rose from the dead. The good news is that God took his wrath towards the injustice of sin and poured it out on his own son so that we might know his love instead of wrath. But I want you to see that there's another angle of this good news in our text today, okay? Two quick things. First, Jesus suffered injustice although he was innocent. 
That should grate at you to the core. And because he took injustice upon himself, do you know what that makes you? It makes you justified by faith in Christ. To say it another way, man can be found innocent because God was found guilty on man's behalf. And don't you see, the reason why you are not condemned before God is because Jesus was willing to stand condemned before men. That's an incredible reversal of fortunes, right? You, in fact, are guilty and, in, uh, and are deserving of condemnation. And Jesus was, in fact, innocent. And yet he suffered injustice to bring an end to the injustice that defines the human experience because of sin. And in suffering that injustice, he made it possible for the unjust to be justified in the eyes of God. That was a lot. Maybe you need to go back and listen to that in my message as it's posted on our podcast later this week because there's a lot in there. Jesus was innocent, but he was declared guilty. And now you who are guilty can be declared innocent before God. And that's a mighty work of God, and that is some truly profoundly good news. We who deserve death now have life through Christ. And second, I want you to see that nobody came to Jesus' aid. Isn't that tragic? Jesus was utterly alone. A crowd full of people who had received nothing from him but blessing, healing, food, wisdom, a vision of God himself. A crowd full of those people and none of them had the courage to stand up and declare, this is wrong, this is unjust. No one came to his aid in his time of need. No one advocated for his innocence. Jesus was alone. And because Jesus was alone, you need to understand, you are actually never alone. Because God took all of the garbage, all of the cruddiness of being alone, and he laid it on Jesus so that instead he could be close to you. See, we are guilty, we are condemned. And think about this, who would dare have the courage to stand up for a guilty person? to aid the wicked in, an, in a moment of need, to advocate on their behalf. I'm, I'm always stunned. You know, one of our primary fundamental rights in America is that if we don't have uh, a lawyer, one will be appointed for us, right? And I always wonder who in the world would take on the scum job of representing some people in a court of law, right? That's me. And Jesus takes that job. He had no advocate, although he should have had everyone as an advocate. And yet, I don't deserve an advocate. And Jesus steps up. See, my sin has put me on trial. And it's put you on trial. And you've been found guilty before a holy God. But rather than leave you to face those consequences alone, like Jesus was alone, Christ stands up and chooses to stand in your place. And because he stands in your place as your advocate, because he shares his innocence with you and takes your guilt, you are never alone. And so whatever circumstances you might be going through, however you might suffer, whatever sin might assault you, whatever loneliness or despair or tragedy might come upon you, Christ 
will always come to your aid because he knows what it feels like to be alone. And he would never want you to experience that. Christ will always stand as your advocate. Christ will always cover you with his love. And so I want you to be encouraged this morning. It doesn't mean that life will always be easy and always go well, but you will, as a believer in Jesus, always have one who will stand on your behalf. Because Jesus faced condemnation alone, you who have placed your trust in him will never be alone. We're going to take communion now together as a church. The way that we're going to do that this morning is through intinction, which just means that uh, our worship team can come forward and um, as they sing this next song and lead us to praise God for everything that he's done, you're invited to go to one of the tables around the room and you'll find crackers there and a, a glass of juice. And uh, just right there at that table, you can take that cracker and worship God by dipping it in the juice and eating it right there. And, and just a couple of things. Um, for those of you who are not believers, Jesus is not your Lord, I would ask you not to approach the table. That's for your benefit. Um, we believe that this is for those of us who are covered by the blood of Jesus, who have partaken of his body, and it's for us to remember everything that he's done for us, and if that's not you, it could be you. Right now, you can turn your heart to God and repent and express love for Him and receive forgiveness and then joyfully join us at one of these tables. And for those of us who are believers, don't rush to do this. I encourage you to spend some moments sitting and praying and giving God thanks, rejoicing in the fact that because Jesus was condemned, you are innocent. Because he was treated unjustly, you have been given grace. Let me pray for us. God, what, what can we even possibly say in light of this truth? We thank you for the promise that you will never leave us. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the warm embrace of your love, Heavenly Father. We thank you for this gift the body and blood of Christ, unjustly condemned that we who are unjust might be forgiven. And Lord, again, I do pray for those in this room who don't yet know your kindness, who, whose eyes have not yet been opened to the truth of your love. Lord, would you open their eyes this morning? And for those who know it, Lord, I pray that we would take responsibility for it, that we would live lives that honor you, not to earn your favor, but because you have already lavished upon us love incomprehensible. And we bless you. Amen.